I would agree with you. And in, in fact, part of my other life is as I help support um, that co-creative process, community-engaged research, community-based research. And in a previous life, I was the, the program officer that piloted the CURA program, the Community University Research Alliance program. I'm completely sympathetic to what you're saying. One of the challenges that people keep you know, pushing at that idea is saying, it takes too much time. I, uh, it takes too much energy. I'm not rewarded for that. And what I'm hearing is we don't have a culture that supports this kind of co-creation, this kind of action, you know, research to action, action to research process. If we were to shift the culture, what are some of the elements of that cultural shift that would allow our institutions and, our, and sectors to work together better? Yeah, well, I think that uh, our, our funding institutions are key in this, in this aspect. I think our funding institutions have to recognize the importance of co-creation of knowledge. I think our funding institutions have to insist that our researchers uh, present, along with their proposals, a project or, or an approach to how they're going, about, going to go about co-creating and transferring knowledge. And if that's incorporated within the plan, then I think uh, that hopefully that'll encourage researchers to get a little bit more uh, to pay more attention to knowledge transfer and to co-creation. Another factor also, Peter, that I think needs to be addressed when we're talking about researchers and how they relate to the practice community, we have uh, in Canada an excellent tradition of research and even of knowledge transfer research, especially in healthcare and in education. A lot of people are doing excellent research work in those areas. Uh, however, funding institutions have a long tradition of uh, operating from a, a relatively positivistic paradigm. So what they're asking researchers to do is to measure the results. When we were talking about evidence earlier, typically when you talk to funding organizations, they're looking at how do we measure, how do we mechanistically uh, break something down and measure it. And if we're talking about knowledge transfer and if we're primarily talking about second-order knowledge transfer, which I'd be happy to describe to you a little bit later, then I think that that entire focus on measurement and on positivistic approach, I think if, if we continue to have to insist on those uh, requirements, then I think uh, we're going to exclude a whole bunch of researchers and a whole bunch of people who are out there looking at uh, trying to understand knowledge transfer from a different perspective. And I'm not sure how our traditional organizations, uh, funding organizations, uh, are prepared to look at uh, those types of proposals. I know, for example, uh, in my world, I get asked regularly, oh, Robert, we want to do some, by funding agencies, they say, we want to do some, some uh, participative action research or some action research. And so when I prepare proposals to do participative action research, almost every time it gets rejected or turned down because, oh, well, that isn't research as we understand it. And I think we're, we're really going to need a major paradigm shift for, on the part of funding organizations and on the part of traditional positivist researchers uh, who are going to, uh, to have to open up the approaches to, to research. You talked earlier about a learning history. Uh, learning history is a very 
uh, positive, solid uh, social construction approach to doing research. Up until now, we've had a lot of difficulty convincing funding agencies that it's an appropriate mechanism. So I think um, we're kind of bucking the system, uh, Peter, by asking these organizations to really do something different. But I think that uh, if I rely on what Meadows and Robinson said in 2002, if a system is behaving badly consistently over a long period of time, and in spite of many variations in surrounding conditions, then something more then marginal tinkering is required to bring about improvement. Well, it's interesting that you say that. Manuel Castells, a number of years ago, wrote that you know networks are the new social morphology of our society, but our institutions are ill-prepared to deal with them. Yes, absolutely. I agree 100% with and that. So, and so do you think that this is actually part of a, of a shift to a more networked society? Oh, absolutely. A more par- a more, uh, it's, a di- it's a shift to a different paradigm. It's a shift to uh, a social paradigm in which people are beginning to see the value of interaction, social interaction, the value of things like these podcasts and and other similar things. And I I see a major shift taking place, at least in organizations. I really can't talk about um, the education field or, or healthcare, but in organizations, I think there's a major shift underway. And up until a short time ago, uh, I, when I, every time I was asked how much time it would take for that shift to take place, I used to say probably um, a generation. I'm a little bit more optimistic than that right now. What I'm seeing as a result of the high-dollar financial uh, changes taking place in Canada and what's happening to some of our organizations, I believe our organizations are being forced to uh, pay a lot more attention to things like networking. And how do we better network? So we're we're more connectable than ever before, but not necessarily more connected. Exactly. Okay. What are you've mentioned some of the challenges, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate on those challenges. And you also talked about second order knowledge transfer. If you can perhaps deal with with that first, and then we'll talk about challenges. And then I'd like you to follow up the challenges with rewards, because I think that because there's so many people working on this, there's so much energy going into it. There's a lot of positive energy, a lot of enthusiasm for this, because I think that people see rewards. If you can just talk about what those would be. Uh, I'll do my best. In terms of (laughs) second-order knowledge transfer, what I was referring to is, up until now, most of the work that's been done in knowledge transfer and exchange has taken what I refer to as a reductionist or mechanistic view that I alluded to earlier. And basically what that does, it assumes that knowledge can be reduced to, uh, to its constituent parts. Uh, and then it can be optimized and fitted together again to achieve the desired outcome. For example, in healthcare, workers are expected to be like structural engineers or Formula One mechanics of the human body. And in some cases, this works fine. If uh, if I have a broken arm and I go in and they repair my arm, then that's fine. Uh, but in it isn't. It is. It's no longer sufficient. A first order of knowledge transfer, where we reify knowledge, we. Uh, try to turn knowledge into something that's codified, that's, that can be written down, that can be, that becomes uh, explicit. Second order knowledge transfer, and this is where uh, most of our work at the laboratory is done, is work on the more tacit types of knowledge. And this implies that fundamental shift of paradigm. We've used knowledge transfer and exchange more as a dynamic process with multiple feedback loops. Uh, first order typically, uh, as I understand it, use knowledge as something that is linear from a producer of knowledge to a translator to a user of that knowledge. 
In the second order knowledge transfer, what we uh, are finding is that, in fact, everyone is a user of knowledge and everyone is also a producer of knowledge and everyone can be a translator of knowledge. In reality, all human actors are constantly engaged in thought and hence are, are engaged in sense-making and interpretation at every instant. For example, you and I, during this interview, are going to be different at the end of this interview. Our knowledge base is going to have changed at the end of this interview compared to what it was at the beginning. And it's the same thing with my students. I've gotten to the point with most of my students, and I'm fortunate to teach primarily at the master's and doctoral level. Um, I learn as much, if not more, from my students than they do from me because of that exchange process. So that the phenomenon of constant thought and action means that there's a perpetual regeneration of knowledge. And in that context, it becomes difficult to just look at explicit knowledge because explicit knowledge that's been codified, that's been, uh, if you would, gelled into either a book or a database or a podcast or something of that nature is fine, uh, but it, uh, it doesn't capture that evolution that's going on in my mind, in your mind, while we're having this discussion, while your lecture, while your uh, listeners are going to be listening to it, what changes that's going to imply for them. What we believe second-order knowledge transfer implies for people is that we need to focus a lot of our research a lot more on a systems-based approach to knowledge. We need to look at relationships between people. We need to look at knowledge boundaries. We need to look at the emergence of new knowledge. We need to look at time delays, generic behaviors, networking, and those sorts of, that sort of language is what we find most of all in second order knowledge transfer. So what we're saying is that organizations, and remember I'm, a, I'm in a business school, <laughs> that organizations really have to develop into what we refer to as complex adaptive systems to be able to deal with those second-order issues. In other words, we have to create a context of trust, a culture of trust and participation that allows people to manage all of those changes in their environment. Okay. One of the, the challenges when I was at Shirk, people would talk about researchers and research users. Mm-hmm. Yet when you do an analysis of citation indexes, well, who's using the research? It's other researchers. So you can't be both. Right. Right, that you have multiple roles in a process. So there's a, a research process, a dissemination process, an implementation process, an evaluation process, and that any one individual can play many different roles in those multiple processes. And, that, and in fact, what we do with our uh, the uh, the article you were reading about our model on uh, the dynamic uh, knowledge exchange model is that we're saying that in fact, no one individual is expected to play all of those roles. That the system has to play has those capacities. Okay. The system that we're looking at, be it uh, healthcare or my organization or uh, IBM, or has to have the ensemble of capacities necessary for knowledge transfer. But we also understand that no one individual can have all of those capacities. So, what are the the greatest challenges of developing an environment that supports those kind of complex adaptive systems? That's a great question, Peter. I would say some of the uh, big challenges are to encourage a climate of trust, a celebration of diversity between researchers and practitioners, 
I think we have to, again, I'm going to come back to some of the things we mentioned earlier. We have to be able to encourage people to take risk. We have to be willing to live with risk. We have to be willing to deal with a little bit of chaos, a little bit of, of non-control. We have to shift our focus towards creativity and innovation rather than control and measurement. So what are the rewards from doing this? If, if you can imagine a system where we're actually doing this, how will our society look different? How will the community that we live in look different? How will the places that we work look different? That's a, that's a tough one to answer. Tito, let me just tell you what I'm seeing with our students. Most of our educational system in the past has been built on a mechanistic approach where uh, the teacher has uh, possesses all kinds of knowledge and he uh, stands before his students and he gives them that knowledge and then at the end of the session the teacher asks the student to give him back that knowledge in roughly the same words that uh, the teacher used. Most of our educational systems people I deal with have experience with are those types of of systems where and probably you had the same type of schooling when you were when you were in school Peter where they teacher tells you what's important and then he asks you tell now tell me what's important and you have to tell him or him or her what what he's already told you is important what we're finding today in a lot of our classrooms is that in fact we've done away with that entirely and we're co-creating knowledge amongst ourselves what that means is that the professor brings to the table uh, a lot of the history of knowledge in a particular area. But then through dynamic discussions with students, they look at how do we apply this in real-world settings in the future? What does that mean to me? How does that impact on me? How do I think that's going to help us in the future to better help us serve the needs of organizations? That approach that we're creating with our students is one where rather than asking them to answer specific questions and to respond to specific questions and stimulus, what we're really doing is trying to get them to be as creative, as imaginative as possible. What we're asking them, what we're looking for them to do is to be able to be part of the solution rather than just describing a problem. We're looking at getting them fully engaged in the process of uh, managing their organizations. And I think that's probably going to be the biggest payoff uh, for our organizations and for our society is people are going to be considerably more engaged than they have been in the past. Given this trend, in 10 years, where do you expect knowledge transfer, knowledge exchange to be? I think that if, if we stay at the first order of knowledge transfer, where we view knowledge as an object, that has to be transferred. Uh, I think it's in 10 years we probably won't be talking much about it. I think it's it will have been seen as a as a fad. Uh, obviously, everyone's going to be, including myself, very grateful for uh, what information, what IT has uh, has allowed us to do and has given us access to. But I think uh, we're going to be elsewhere in the way we were dealing with uh, our organizations and dealing with change within our organizations. Whereas if second-order knowledge transfer takes hold, then I think we're going to be creating a society that is much richer, both in, ter in terms of financial wealth, but also in terms of relational wealth, relationship wealth, 
in terms of trust, in terms of uh, pleasures of working together, in terms of the challenges we face together. I think uh, I'm extremely positive uh, about the future, uh, Peter, and the future of knowledge transfer. Robert, merci beaucoup. It's my pleasure.